the right idea at the right time. The miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. From Atlanta, I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. James, today we are talking to Remus Kapeskis. He's in the house. He manages our strategic enterprise fund. Essentially, that's our venture capital unit. So he is going around and finding the next big idea or the next startup to either partner with, maybe invest with. He's going to talk a lot about how that approach actually differs depending on the situation in the company. I think he provides a really good perspective about the state of venture capital today particularly what that means from the corporate side. And we have partnerships or we work with big companies, but this one's really focused on the startups that kind of bring new things to the table we might not have thought of or might be able to apply in other areas of our business to really kind of think outside the box, so to speak. Right. I was just seeing a stat about this where you've got companies that would be a startup maybe 10 years ago, the cost of entry to get into that was like $5 million. The data basically shows now that, what, 10, 15 years later, the cost to go into business as a startup could be as low as $5,000. That's where you're seeing a lot of these startups pop up because the cost of entry is low. Right. And Remus talks a lot, too, about how just being around all these startups has changed his thought process, how it has produced innovation, and it's kind of just rubbed off on him. And we talk a lot at UPS about not wanting to get too set in our ways and missing the next opportunity around the corner. This is the guy kind of on the front line who is tapping into that value. Yeah. Big established companies need to have kind of this outside influence to help us think different. And I'll let everyone know I resisted the urge to pitch Remus on all my best ideas. I wrote them all down on a sticky note before we got here. There's a million dollar idea in there, but you know, I didn't want to be too selfish. Well, yeah, we, we got to keep on point. So without further ado, here's Remus. Remus, thanks so much for being with us today. We're really looking forward to this conversation about what you do uh, and why it matters here at UPS. Thanks for having me. So UPS partners with some of the world's largest companies, but where you come in is you're specifically focused on startups, right? Correct. So large companies are very good at doing many things, and, and that's why they become large companies and are successful. Sometimes the challenge for large companies, though, is getting out of their own way. So when it comes to new emerging technologies and, and new ways of doing things, sometimes things don't really get integrated as soon as they probably should or could because companies keep doing what they're good at and what they're successful at. So the whole idea of corporate venture capital is something that I think many cor large corporations are participating in now. And if you're just looking internally at what you're good at, you may miss some of those opportunities. So there was an article in uh, Fortune last year that talked about how 67% of companies of our size want to work with startups. Mm -hmm. So they recognize that we need to do it. And 23% said it was mission critical. So is it that important for us? Well, you know, it's interesting that you referenced that article. I think there's been several things that have kind of driven that, that trend 
because when we first started doing corporate venturing 20 years ago, that was the height of the dot-com boom. And there was only a few dozen corporations that were doing what would really be considered corporate venturing at that time. And it's steadily grown, and it's especially exploded over the last five to 10 years. And I think it's important to understand you know, what other large companies are seeing these small companies do. I mean, there's definitely value there. And some of the trends we're seeing is that some of the most talented people coming out of the universities these days, they don't want to go work for a large corporation necessarily. They're much more attracted to what's happening with the startup scene, okay, because they're able to really roll up their sleeves and, and really apply what they've learned in new ways into new areas in a way that, you know, many of them don't see those same opportunities at large corporations. Now, I could argue that there are those types of opportunities too. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that a lot of the really good technical talent is is more interested in going to work for a startup these days. One of the most common phrases you'll hear in the business world is think like a startup. What does that mean to you? So the biggest difference, I think, between a large corporation and a startup is the appetite for risk. I think that's what really defines, in a large corporation's perspective, success. Okay, if you can minimize risk, then you are going to predict better probability of success, correct? But when it comes to new technologies and, and new methods and, and things of that nature, sometimes those risks are a little outside the comfort zone of large companies. Well, that's not true with startups. That's actually where startups thrive. They like to look for those types of opportunities. What is it that other people aren't doing yet that we think we can solve a problem with? So I think there's an, an ability for startups to take on risks that aren't really as risky for them. I mean, if something doesn't work out for a startup, then they just move on to the next idea and start up another company or whatever it may be. So they're not affecting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of employees and stakeholders, investors, and so forth to the same degree. So the risk in that sense is much lower. The other differentiation is that small companies are much more flexible in how they approach things. Uh, large corporations tend to pick a path and they go down, charging down that path and they're very efficient in making that happen. So having worked for many years in our UPS product development group, I, I saw our stage gate process and how it has to be very structured and organized in order to make things work within a large organization with multiple enterprise systems and so forth. Startups aren't encumbered by things like that. They can actually move and pivot and change the way they're doing things very quickly. And, and those types of moves, frankly, would make large corporations shudder. They cannot imagine making those types of fast changes. I think that's an interesting point you bring up. And I wonder, how do you find the sweet spot, right? Because obviously, when you're a company this size, you have a lot of assets and a lot of advantages. And there is a such thing as being not risky enough. But if you get too risky, how do you kind of balance those competing interests? Well, and again, that is my job is to help open up a window for UPS into what the future might look like. And with the whole objective of learning. So I, I want to back up one step and just explain what corporate venture capital is, because I think it's an important part of this discussion is to understand how does corporate venture capital different from institutional venture capital, or traditional venture capital that we're used to hearing about all the time. These venture capital companies that invest in large companies like Facebook, Twitter, and all these other successful companies, their pure motivation in the world is to find interesting companies that they can make money by investing in. And that's it. Their whole objective is to make money for their partners and investors. Okay. And for a corporation, it's usually somewhat different, especially for large corporations. The larger cor the corporation is with a corporate venture unit, I would say the more likely their focus for a purpose of having a corporate venture unit is strategic. 
not that they don't want to make some money off of their investments, but the real objective they have is to get knowledge. Okay, learn about things that they might not ordinarily learn about because they're getting closer to the startup ecosystem. And frankly, that's an important differentiation because when you're a large corporation, even if you make some money off of your corporate venture capital investments, it's really still a rounding error overall for a large profitable corporation. So there has to be a different purpose for doing this to make it something sustainable. Yeah. So Facebook has bought WhatsApp for $18 billion. GM had invested in Lyft. So instead of buying them for $5.5 billion, they invested $500 million. Yep. So why did they make the decision to do that? Or why would a company like that decide to just put a large stake in it versus buy it straight out? Well, and there's a few different ways to look at that to come up with an answer. But I would say from a corporate perspective, like Ford and GM and others are doing by investing in companies like Uber and Lyft, they're buying themselves optionality. They understand that there's something changing in their marketplace and the way people go about using automobiles or mobility is changing. So car ownership may very well change. And, and I think Lyft and Uber are two very good examples of how that is, is trending right now, where you don't see young people as likely to want to buy vehicles because they have other alternatives. So I think a large corporation, by placing a bigger bet like that, a half a billion dollars, is really saying, we like to learn more about this. And we think that there's something important going on here. And we may need to get in front of this. We may not do it ourselves organically. We may have to acquire a company that's good at doing this, but in the meantime, we should at least give ourselves some options so we can get closer to it, learn how we plug our fleet production into that type of model, and then leave yourself some optionality if you need to buy a company like that in the future. Uh, that's still a strong possibility. How do you approach partners when you're thinking about making certain investments? What's your mindset and what are you looking for? Well, I think the important thing to think about is not every small startup company is going to necessarily become an investment for us. You know, we look at them in many different ways. We're really just trying to assess what is it that they're doing and is it interesting for us and when will it become potentially very interesting or important for us. So some of the startups we look at will become investments, but it's only a handful a year that we invest in. The portfolio has about 20 companies in it right now. And, you know, we add two or three every year to it, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. But there's a lot of companies that we'll look at. We'll look at thousands of companies a year. And some of those companies could become uh, interesting pilots that we're testing some of that technology. It doesn't make sense for us to invest in them necessarily, but we do make the introductions internally into the company to the right business unit or functional group to make sure that they're not missing an opportunity to learn more about a new technology. Is it always in our lane, like logistics and transportation, or do we go outside of that? So that's actually a great question. We have a very interesting philosophy the way we look at our venture capital investments that I like to say is possibly counterintuitive to some people. So many people may know about Warren Buffett and his investment strategy, which has been very successful, again, for financial gain. Warren invests in things that he knows and understands. For a corporate venture unit, I would say, particularly in the case of UPS, we, we understand and know logistics very well. But if what we're investing for is knowledge about new things, we're actually going to invest in things we don't know about or don't understand well enough right now, but we think that they may be important in the future. So it is a little bit counterintuitive, but we're outside of our main lane. We're looking more for the adjacencies and things that are going to possibly influence logistics and supply chains in the future or how our clients go about accessing it. So I'd say some of those support technologies and things that are going to make things work better, faster, cheaper, whatever it may be, they may not be squarely in our lane, 
but they may be something that's very complementary. So you do have to look at a much broader spectrum. So now that we've talked a little bit about your philosophy, I wonder, given that a lot of this conversation is around our network of the future and moving goods faster than we ever have before in new and exciting ways, are there certain investments or technologies that you think are particularly exciting within building that network of the future? When you think about how things are changing, and things are changing more rapidly than ever, so there, there's an exponential curve happening to, to many types of technologies right now. I'd say the most exciting one is is the whole idea about where computer technology is going. The computing power has been following Moore's Law for a number of years, but now we're finally getting to a very exciting point in time where the whole machine learning aspect, meaning the, the vast amounts of data that exist today are going to be making those computers much smarter. And they're going to start being able to make better decisions, faster decisions without the intervention of humans. And that's an interesting thing because there's going to be many things that they can process and do now that humans may never have come about. But in the supply chain and logistics space, there's also vast amounts of data that UPS has that we're just learning now how to actually capture the value the best way out of that data. And it's going to be through machine learning, I believe. So Remus, talk to us about the coolest thing we're working on right now with one of our partners, or, or at least the technology. There's several that I think are cool. So this is kind of like trying to pick your favorite kid when you're a parent. Do you have a favorite kid? Uh, I love them all. Good answer. But let me highlight one technology I think that has definitely moved from that phase of toys to tools. Uh, and it's uh, referred to as 3D printing or additive manufacturing. This is a particular technology that we've been watching for a long time. And it's one that we've known is going to be disruptive to some areas of business and manufacturing and potentially supply chains. So a few years ago, we did make an investment in a company called Fast Radius that's got an interesting approach to deploying additive manufacturing in an interesting way. 3D printing has been around for three decades now, but it's been primarily focused on prototypes, you know, one-offs. You know, it's a great tool for design, but where it's becoming a tool now is the level of sophistication in a technology where you can actually use this for high-end manufacturing. And that's when things really do change. Uh, this becomes now a, a tool for manufacturing, just like CNC machines and other methods like injection molding. This has become a very valid form of manufacturing now for not just one-off prototypes, but actually small batches of, of high-end parts that are not necessarily, you don't need to produce millions of these. When you, when you are using CNC machining or injection molding, you're basically having to create a die, a mold, or something that costs a lot of money to make that very first one. With 3D printing, there isn't that expense that's high on the first one. You're, you're flattening out the, the expense curve. But the more important part of this is really you're able to make things in a much smaller footprint to a very high specification, but you're able to do it potentially to the closer to the, the point of consumption. And I think that's the important part about where it may change supply chains. So we're not talking about large industrial complex manufacturing anymore where you've got these large factories with smoke billowing out of, out of the, the smokestacks, but now you've got production happening in small little footprints where you can actually be having high-end healthcare medical products being made or aviation components and things of that nature. So the introduction of the material science aspect to 3D printing is what's been the catalyst, I think, of the revolution where now you've got 
all kinds of different alloys, not just plastics, but you've got metals capabilities now that are are actually moving very quickly. And you can produce very high-end parts, and you're not spending all that money on the very first one uh, like you do with the other methods of manufacturing, which also is interesting because it allows you to iterate and enhance and improve each one that you make, you can iterate it a little bit. So it's kind of that whole startup, you know, reduced risk, reduced cost potentially. Uh, so there's a tie-in with that. But where it's important to us at UPS is understanding how this is going to affect manufacturing. So when people talk about disruption, it's an interesting thing to think about. I think disruption is something that happens if you're not paying attention. I think what's happening is really an evolution in the manufacturing space. And, and manufacturing has been one of the great areas for UPS to service uh, for for a long, long time, and it will continue to be so. But I think with the addition of 3D printing now, how we go about designing our supply chains is going to be much more interesting. And that's why we're taking a startup like Fast Radius and actually embedding their capabilities in some of our biggest logistics hubs. Mm -hmm. So we've opened up a facility in Worldport where we have them with a small footprint there, but they've got dozens of their machines able to make parts for clients on demand, and we can put them at the end of the runway there and get them on the next flight out so they can be available for use uh, the very next day. It's interesting because it's clearly where the world is heading. This is where manufacturing is going, right? But I know there are those out there who might look at it strictly through dollars and cents and say, why isn't 3D printing a major threat to a logistics company like UPS when you have potentially shorter supply chains? How would you kind of respond to that critique out there? Again, I'll come back to evolution. As long as you're paying attention to the shifts and changes and they're not catching you off guard, I think that you can prepare for these shifts. So as long as we're the logistics and supply chain provider that's ready for this shift, I think that we're going to be, you know, someone that's going to be providing a majority share of that type of logistics support. So it's just a matter of understanding how it may affect, you know, our supply chain. So it may not be as big a shift focus on global. You may get down to regional supply chain networks that you have to really tweak to, you know, make the best of this technology. Because it's going to still be a number of years before you're seeing these things on your kitchen counter doing amazing things. But in an industrial space, I mean, these now really are very functional high-end tools. Taking a step back from all these big ideas, I want to talk about you specifically. Uh, how many years have you been doing this? It's been over six years now that I've been doing this. So it's one of the longer stints I've had at UPS doing something. And, and it's a great thing for me. I, I find it a challenge and interesting uh, every single day. There is no repetition. There is no routine. It's very different every day. And I find that exciting. And I also thrive from the energy of the startups that I get to be involved with because they are running on high octane energy all the time. And it's infectious. Where do you think the space has changed the most since when you started? Since I've started, I think the way I see at least our approach to it is being much more practical. I mean, the whole space of startups gets a lot of media attention for, again, some of the very big names that that grow very rapidly and then get acquired for a a huge dollar figure. Those are great legendary stories uh, with some very interesting companies. But I think as you're looking at startups, you know, it's important to understand that a very high percentage of startups are going to fail. Okay, I think the stats are for small businesses, 80 plus percent fail within the first two to three years. It's not different with startups. The difference is that there is venture money uh, and corporate support that comes in. And I think the ones that get chosen by corporate venture capitalists are much more likely to succeed because they've got some support for them. Just curious, how many flights are you taking a year if you had to ballpark it? (laughs) So the airlines love me. Uh, I don't know if I count the segments, but I'm, I'm, I'm... 
flying a fair amount of miles. But I, I'll tell you, you know, the, the interesting thing about technology, too, is I'm doing a lot more video chats with startups. So I think, I think it's an interesting transition to a technology that you can get to meet and understand these people much more easily now through technology. Uh, there's still a face-to-face -face component of the relationship. I'd say that more of my travel now is for networking within other corporate venture people that are in this industry, because we, we're the best source of kind of sharing best practices and leads with each other that help identify good companies that we come across and also helping educate other people in the UPS network globally. So my travel right now is focused on making sure we've got a few people in Europe and Asia and other areas of UPS that understand what we're looking for and what we want to do with startups. When you look, and you mentioned inside UPS, but in corporations that are established, do you find there are any wrinkles that happen with traditional leaders when they look at the startup model in accepting it? We talked about risk earlier. I think when you look at these companies from a financial perspective, it's it's high risk. I mean, they don't have any kind of substantial revenue uh, backing as far as you know customers and you know cash flow. So anyone from a financial mindset only is going to look at this and say, God, I don't know how these people survive. It is counterintuitive to look at them with that type of corporate lens. You do have to suspend a little bit of disbelief and try to think about you know, how strong is a team? So part of how I look at startups is not just is it an interesting idea that they have, but how strong is their team? Can they actually execute on what they're doing? So the diligence work that I do looking at these startup companies is really to understand the people on the team and what their backgrounds are and how well they work together. And that's where the face-to-face -face relationship gives you a few more clues to this. But, you know, you're really getting into a long-term relationship when you get into corporate venturing. It's not like M&A. M&A, you do your diligence work and you decide, are we going to buy this or not. And once you do, all you do is focus on how you're going to integrate that into your big corporation. I think that might be a good place to kind of wind this down. So from your perspective, what does success look like? And I mean, specifically from what you do on a daily basis, what is a good batting average for these relationships with the companies you're looking at? So defining success for a startup, from the startup's perspective, getting to an IPO and making billions of dollars uh, or being acquired by someone for, for a very large dollar amount is success. And that's the success also for the venture capitalists that are the institutional venture capitalists driven purely by, you know, the goal of making money. Uh, so I'd say their batting average is, is a typical bell curve where you've got some companies that will fail. You'll have some in the middle that will do so-so. And you're hoping to get at least one out of every 10 or so that really does very, very well and covers all the, the losses for the others and gives you even a better return than average for your investors. That's a batting average that you kind of look at as a simple bell curve. In, in a corporate venture space where you're strategically trying to invest in companies, I'd say it's a little bit different. You can hit a home run with one single company uh, if they help you accelerate your path into a new technology or, or business model faster than you would have yourself. It's a little harder to measure sometimes, but what we're really trying to do is make sure we don't miss an opportunity. We want to make sure that we're not being reactive to new technologies. We want to be proactive. So the way we look at success really is, are we paying attention to the changes out in the environment right now as far as some of the new technologies and models that startups are, are working with? And are we incorporating those back successfully into what we think is going to be the future of UPS? And so if I have a big idea, can I pitch you on it after this meeting and get some funding? Absolutely. Remus, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. I know you're going to be busy. There's a lot of changes on the horizon. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. 
Pleasure to be here. 